Welcome to No Baller. I am Chris Rawl, and it is Wednesday, August 11th. On today's show, the separation between blue blood and upstart in college football and what that looks like moving forward. Before we get there, I will give you one reason why gambling should be legal in the state of Utah where I live. Now, the least profitable thing you could do in college football over the last 12 years is bet against Alabama. However, I'm going to do that today because I'm living life on the edge, because I live in Utah and I'm breathing a lot of smoke in and I don't feel great and my brain's not working properly and neither are my lungs. So we're going to bet Georgia plus 225 to win the SEC. And yes, again, I realize betting against Alabama, not been very profitable. However, I believe this is the year. That's why we're riding Georgia and also gives us the number one reason why gambling should be legal in the state of Utah, because it will remind everybody of that one time in January of 2009, that Utah whooped Alabama's ass in the Sugar Bowl. And now, a word from our sponsor, Traeger Grills. Traeger invented the original wood-fired grill over 30 years ago in Mount Angel, Oregon. They continue to lead the industry as the world's number one selling wood-fired grill perfected by decades of mastering the craft of wood-fired cooking. You can find out more at TraegerGrills.com. There has never been a more relevant time to reflect on the past, the present, and the future of college football than right now uh, for very obvious reasons. And I'm probably going to do this about once a week leading into the season because that's where we're at within this sport, uh, a time of turmoil, change, upheaval, all of those things. On July 27th, uh, I kind of recorded an episode all about Oklahoma and Texas and conference realignment and the butterfly effects that tie into that specific thing. Uh, And I could go on for days and days about that subject, and I capped myself because I have respect for you, the listener. Uh, But, you know, about a week later, August 3rd, the unintended consequences of conference realignment. And everything that goes into the reordering and the reshuffling of the deck and how there's a lot of stuff that we don't really necessarily know is going to happen until we see it play out. And then we assess whether or not that's positive or negative. Today, I kind of want to talk about a slightly different subject when it comes to the sport of college football and all of this upheaval and change. Uh, Because uh, today I want to talk about the separation between blue bloods and upstarts within the sport and what that looks like moving forward, because I find it to be a very interesting and pertinent subject in present day. So college football is a sport that has always trumpeted the Blue Bloods, your teams with tradition, with resources, with power, and most importantly, what ties into a Blue Blood is the ability to consistently win football games. Very interesting note in the context of teams and programs that we still consider to be blue bloods in present day. If you go down the all-time victory list within the sport of college football, a lot of familiar names that have been there all throughout my life and extending well into the past of the sport. It's your Oklahomas and your Notre Dames and USC and Alabama and Ohio State, all the teams that are kind of synonymous with the sport of college football. However, You keep scanning that list, you know, you stay within the top 20 programs, the all-time winningest teams within the history of this sport, and there's also a shocking amount of these Blue Bloods, these teams with tradition and resources and power and wins on their resume that haven't done a whole lot for kind of a shocking amount of time. 
I want to read something to you from Adam Rittenberg of ESPN. The past 40 years in college football have featured some surprising droughts, including extended lulls without conference championships for former powers Tennessee, 1998, Nebraska, 1999, Miami, 2003, and Michigan, 2004, and well-positioned programs such as Texas A&M, 1998, and UCLA, 1998, end quote. So I found this stat to be very fascinating. Obviously, I'm well aware of the Nebraska drought. That's my team. I follow them closely. I lament about it daily. I was not fully aware of some of these other droughts uh, and how programs like Tennessee and Miami and Michigan, they're sitting on similarly sized conference title droughts to Nebraska and also teams that are I view as just either sleeping giants or have been powerful in the past, but maybe not so. Texas A&M and UCLA, they're also sitting since 1998. Kind of an incredible thing to look at, especially because I look at all of those programs and in the context of present day, I think everyone else alongside me looks at them and goes, yeah, yeah, these are blue bloods within the sport, despite the fact that they haven't done a whole lot of winning at the conference level for 20 plus years. And for some of these teams, unfortunately mine included, they haven't done a whole lot of winning period within the last two plus decades. So it raises an interesting question of when does a drought become a reality? And you look at that list and all of these teams are kind of reflecting upon themselves and asking, you know, what does it take for us to return to glory? We've tasted it in the past. All those teams have. Uh, There's a lot of national titles and conference titles and winning seasons when you look at teams of that ilk. Uh, But also, each of these teams kind of comes to the table with very different situation from one another uh, when it comes to geography, when it comes to conference alignment, when it comes to recruiting capabilities, and a lot of this other stuff that ties into success on the football field. So I think a lot of these teams, these Former Blue Bloods, current Blue Bloods, whatever you want to call them, but Blue Bloods who are in extended lulls when it comes to on-field success, I think they kind of look towards Clemson as the current gold standard for this idea of returning to power. Um, Because Clemson, they also fell on a lot of hard years relative to their winning past. Again, Clemson, top 20 program all time when it comes to wins. A lot of people for all of time have said this is an SEC team playing in the ACC, meaning just football is everything. And this school is dedicated to providing the resources and the commitment and all those things outside of the football field that are needed to build up a winning football program. So they win a national title in 1981, uh, and they still have good years kind of going up until about 1990. But from 1990 to 2010, 20 years, they have zero 10-win seasons. And during this time frame, a lot of people are referring to Clemson as kind of, yeah, it's a sleeping giant, but we don't really know what's going on with this team. You know, the term Clemsoning comes about just the way that a team can pull defeat from the jaws of victory over and over, the way they can trip over their own shoes and just cost cost themselves continually. They kind of become a joke within the college football world, Clemsoning, right? Uh, Within the 2008 season, dude named Dabble Sweeney, he takes over for the last seven games of that year and ends up coaching in their bowl game against Nebraska. Gator Bowl that year, 
Nebraska beats Clemson, which looking at in retrospect, it's only 13 years ago, but it seems like 500 lifetimes ago that Nebraska and Clemson were pitted against one another in a bowl game and Nebraska somehow came out on top. Seems like an alternate reality to the present version of college football. Now, I remember watching this game um, and Nebraska at the time, they're reasonable, they're respectable, and Dominic and Sue is coming onto the scene and kind of showing that he's going to be the catalyst for the best Nebraska defense of the last 20-plus years in the following season in 2009. But on the opposite side, I just had no idea what was to come from Clemson. I remember thinking it was weird that they hired this guy who I didn't really know, Dabble Sweeney, who knows what that is and why are they? why is this sleeping giant of a program hiring this guy? Uh, and as it turns out, we, we kind of know how this plays out. 2011, the rise kind of begins. The 10-win season, they break through that ceiling. However, they get hammered by West Virginia in the Orange Bowl that year. 70-33, to 33, they give up 70 points to West Virginia. And the, the laughs kind of come out, the Clemsoning jokes come out, all that kind of stuff. But what we don't necessarily realize at the time, but in retrospect, definitely gain a grasp, the foundation is being laid at that time. The recruiting, the coaching, the vision, the distribution of resources, all the things that are needed for a successful powerhouse blue blood football program. Uh, And since then, 2011, Clemson has won at least 10 games every season since. 10 straight years after a 20-year drought. They've won two national titles, managing to beat Alabama in both of those games. Another thing that just very few teams have proven that they've been able to do under the Nick Saban era. Clemson has made six straight playoffs. Just an incredible extended run of success for a decade from a team that was completely dormant from its influence on college football, from its status as a blue blood, and then hired the right coach and dedicated themselves on the commitment side and the resource side to building it up. And those two things in unison, uh, they gave rise to one of the dominant powers of the last decade in college football. So every team on this blue blood list that I'm referencing before, when it's Michigan and UCLA and Miami and Nebraska and all these teams, they're looking at this rise and going, okay, how do we mimic what Clemson has done to return to power? And how much of that is actually realistic for our specific program? Because again, Clemson is a very different situation from Michigan, which is a different situation from UCLA and Nebraska and go on down the list. And so how much of this is realistic to pluck and mimic? Uh, The one thing that is, is we have to have the right coach in place who can lay down the vision and foundation of a successful program. And some of it, depending upon the other blue bloods, might not be as realistic. This SEC team in an ACC conference but recruits like an SEC team and has the resources like an SEC team and dedication like an SEC team, that might not be as realistic in some of these other areas. However, each of these teams, they kind of have their own varied pathway to success if they can find it. That's the look in the mirror moment for each of these teams. How do we return to our past glory Um, and how much of that is actually realistic? So when you talk about college football in present day, one of the main things... And one of the keys to success is recruiting. And I want to read a quote from Ari Wasserman of The Athletic that ties into this. This is something every recruiting coordinator at every middle-tier program in the country has to ponder. How can you build a program when you need to win more to get good players? All while the best players are most attracted to the programs that are already winning. 
end quote. It's a great question. And this is kind of, we're starting to talk now about the separation between blue bloods and upstarts and how they can mitigate that gap. The recruiting gap, that's a big deal, especially on the national title level or the national title winning skill because recruiting is a must in that particular realm. You cannot win the national title in present playoff college football without the ability to recruit on the same level as these powers that be in present day. Alabama, Clemson, Oklahoma, Georgia, you know the list. Uh, A dude named Bud Elliott, who now works for 27 Sports, uh, he came up with the blue chip ratio, which is just, it's if your team has a higher percentage of four and five star recruits on your roster than two to threes over a four-year rolling period, then you are in a very select list that from a recruiting and talent perspective says you can win the national title in the playoff era. It's the gateway to contention in present day. Uh, And that list is kind of reserved for a small amount of teams. This year, there's 16 teams on that list, the blue chip ratio list, where 50 plus percent of their roster is four and five star recruits rather than your low level recruits. Now, it's not to say that you can't have success recruiting lower. We have a lot of teams that do that. But the gateway to national title contention in the playoff era, when you have to play two of these other recruiting powers within the playoff, it's a must. So you look at the top of that blue chip ratio list, and it's very predictable. The top six teams, the highest percentage of blue chip players relative to non-blue chip players on a roster. Alabama one, Georgia two, Ohio State, Clemson, LSU, Oklahoma. All the teams that are in the playoffs and winning the national titles year after year after year after year in the playoff era. So now we kind of start to examine the past of college football relative to the present and relative to the future when it comes to blue bloods and the separation from them and upstarts. Because the flip side of these dormant blue blood programs that are trying to rise back into power and the flip side kind of in part of this recruiting discussion is how do you build a winning program if you've never had extended success? And we've seen incredible stories in the past of teams that kind of taken this particular avenue. The two that really came to mind as I was thinking about this um, are Bill Snyder at Kansas State and Frank Beamer at Virginia Tech. Two of just the most incredible success stories from my youth uh, that tie into a program rising out of nowhere to become a really influential football school for a long period of time. Bill Snyder and Kansas State, it's probably one of the, it's not probably, it is one of the most incredible rise to powers in the history of sports period. Because prior to Bill Snyder taking over at K-State in 1989, they are one of, if not the most decrepit programs in college football. In 93 years of play prior to him taking over, Kansas State is winning 37% of their games. They're 299 and 510. They've made one bowl game in their entire history, 1982 Independence Day Bowl. In the previous 44 years of Bill Snyder taking over, they had four winning seasons, okay? So you understand this is a team that has had no success ever, never, never, never in their entire history. And so Bill Snyder comes in and he has to ask uh, that question to himself, Uh, that every middle-tier or low-tier team is asking themselves, how do we get players to come and play at a program that is not winning and has never won, especially when 
players are attracted to winning programs. You know, it's kind of the catch-22 of recruiting and trying to build up a winning program. However, he takes over and he lays the groundwork and the foundation for one of the most successful programs of the next 20 years, essentially. Um, he goes 215 and 117 and 1 in his tenure. Total flip-flop of what was going on before he took over. He wins multiple Big 12 championships. He comes within an overtime loss to Texas A&M in the 1998 Big 12 title game of playing for the national championship that year. I still believe that was possibly the best team in college football in 1998, that Kansas State team. Really uh, an incredible rise from where Kansas State was less than a decade earlier in 1989 when he took over. Uh, And Bill Snyder, he never really knocked anybody's socks off with recruiting. He just knew and grasped and understood how to build a a winning program in that specific area, Manhattan, Kansas, and how to recruit the right players for that particular system and how to do it again and again and again on repeat. Now, this is a little bit different from present-day college football because as we know with this, this rise in recruiting powers and how important it is in the playoff era, that style of building a program, it seems like it has a ceiling in present day. Maybe it doesn't, but I think that the playoff era has kind of pointed towards that being true. However, another story at that time that was incredible, Frank Beamer in Virginia Tech, which was a program that was nowhere near decrepit as Kansas State, but Beamer takes over and coaches them for 29 years and turns them into one of the very best programs of my childhood. He wins 66% of his games during that nearly three-decade tenure. He wins three Big East titles and four ACC championships. Um, And the year after that, Kansas State, just oh-so-close 1998 moment, um, Virginia Tech is playing for the national title. Michael Vick's their quarterback. They're going toe-to-toe against Florida State, just a blue-blood powerhouse of that era. And they got a Virginia Tech has a lead in the second half of that game. They end up losing by 17 points. But it was also a testament to building the program in a different manner from how Blue Bloods build their program. Beamer came into Virginia Tech. He had a vision. He laid the foundation. He didn't recruit at the very highest level, but he trusted in his system and his understanding of what was needed in Blacksburg, Virginia. And that's what happened. Uh, Virginia Tech rose to power. They rose to prominence. Two of the greatest upstart stories in the history of college football, Beamer at Tech and Snyder at Kansas State. And they kind of segued into probably the last and most modern example of this particular phenomenon in college football. This team coming out of, relatively coming out of nowhere to be a major factor on the national scene. Uh, Boise State, which moves to FBS in 1996. And they have some great head coaches for the next few years. Houston Nutt, Dirk Cutter, Dan Hawkins, all of you know those go, all of those coaches go on to different various bigger jobs after they coach Boise State. But it leads into the Chris Peterson tenure from 2006 to 2013. One of the most successful runs that a coach has ever had at any program. It's when Boise became Boise as we know them now in present day. The symbolic... David trying to slay Goliath, but then David became so good that it was almost kind of a Goliath during that time. In a past show, you know, I talked all about that famous upset of Oklahoma in January of 2007 in the Fiesta Bowl, one of the all-time college football games, one that really can't exist now in present day. It was 
almost a testament to kind of a bygone era, even though it was only 14 years ago. But it was one of those, it marked Boise State coming out of the scene as, hey, we're here and we can kick the ass of Blue Bloods. But it also marked this team that said, all right, uh, we'll play anybody, anywhere, anytime. We don't care if you're a Blue Blood or not. We think that we are building a good enough program that we can go and beat anybody who's put in front of us. And they do that, which was shocking at the time. And at first it seemed kind of fluky as they're beating Oregon and as they're beating Georgia and as they're beating Virginia Tech and all of these teams that we have associated with college football success at the time, Boise goes and beats them and they beat them and they beat them again and they beat Oklahoma. Uh, the high watermark is 2009 when Boise goes 14-0 and they go and play in the Fiesta Bowl that year. They beat TCU, which was an awesome team that year in their own right. Andy Dalton's their quarterback. Uh, two upstarts also at the time pitted against one another. And during this time frame, 2008 to 2011, Boise State goes 50-3. and three. Uh, You remember this as the Kellen Moore quarterback era. Kellen Moore and Chris Peterson, they're just... They're beating the pants off of everybody who's put in front of them. Three losses over that time frame. 50 wins. Um, it's kind of one of the moments that push us towards the playoff era. Cause I think a lot of people who follow college football and loved it were frustrated with the continual box out of the upstart. And when there are only two teams that are available to play for the national title, uh, why wouldn't Boise state be offered a seat at the table sooner or later, especially when they're having this much extended success. And then the playoff came about, you know, not until 2014. But I think Boise State and this rise from nothing into everything, it kind of helped signal a shift within college football. Now we know in present day, the unintended consequence of having a playoff is that it didn't give a seat at the table to the upstart because UCF went undefeated and a lot of people wanted to see them go and play in the playoff. And instead they were pushed into a New Year's Six Bowl against Auburn and beat them. Auburn, a team that beat Georgia and Alabama that year, the two teams that played for the national title. But it just, it seems like a 14 playoff has always been about, uh, we're still going to box out the upstart programs in favor of the Blue Bloods. Kind of a sad story of college football for a long, long period of time. Now, why I think this is sad is because college football at its best, in my opinion, is a kind of an all-encompassing blend of both of these things. It's a blend of blue bloods that are stable and they're in power, and also these blue bloods that are struggling to return to power. And then on the other side, it's these up-and-comers that are eager to take their spot, like Kansas State and Virginia Tech and Boise State have done in the past, and who knows who that could be if the sport of college football were not changing in the way that it is. Uh, think of it essentially as the Game of Thrones style scenario. You know, you win or you die. There's the one throne. Everybody's vying for that throne. And you have a lot of different styles of team and program building mechanisms that can vie for that. That was college football in the past. But I promise to talk about past, present, future. And probably the least hopeful part of the future of college football for me is it, it's this. It's the elimination of the dynamic of blue bloods and up-and-comers and upstarts. Because when power is fully consolidated with this new alignment, 
um, and the Big Ten and the SEC are the power brokers in college football, I don't really understand how it's going to be possible for smaller programs to rise in a manner that they did in the past, um, where stories like Kansas State and Virginia Tech and Boise and even that recent surge I mentioned of UCF, where they played a large role in college football. I don't understand how those exist with what the sport is moving forward. Um, so the past, it had these upstart stories in great quantities. It was awesome. I loved it. I think a lot of people did too. The present still has it, uh, but it it kind of feels like that particular aspect of the sport of college football is slowly being phased out. And the future, um, it just seems like there'll be no room for anybody at all except the Blue Bloods. Thank you for listening to No Baller. This show is produced by Weston Tanner and can be consumed in a variety of ways. You can download it as a podcast on Apple, Google, Spotify, or the platform of your choice. You can also view it in video form via the Beehive TV app, which can be downloaded on Apple, Google, Roku, and Amazon Fire. For more information, go to noballer.com.